NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another special edition of the National Writing Project's The Right Time, a show that brings teachers together with writers and visionaries together with classroom possibilities. Um, I'm Brian Ripley Crandall, and I couldn't be more awestruck than I am right now with tonight's show. Anyone who has been in my classroom or seen me present locally or nationally recognizes how much admiration I have for anyone who dedicates their lives for the wellness of others and who step up and into the world with a vision for humanity and justice. So in 2009, when I first began doctoral studies in literacy with a focus on the writing of eight African-born refugee background young men, I discovered the story of Luma Mufla. Ever since, I have used her work, the videos online, and her inspiration with schools across the nation. You can imagine my surprise when I saw not one, but two books coming out as advanced readers with her story. She has been a Northern star that guides my own purpose in life, especially with refugee background youth. I am thrilled to announce she's here with us tonight as a special guest on our show. But first, Tanya, my West Coast friend, it's been a while since I've seen you. How have you been? Well, Brian, my life is a little bit less colorful when we're not regularly recording right time. So I'm so glad that we're back together. As you know, yesterday was the summer solstice, which means really the beginning of professional learning for deep professional learning for a lot of teachers who spend their summers doing that. And I'm so glad that we're kicking off summer for the writing project with this show. Um, what else do I have to say? I'm Tanya Baker. I'm the director of national programs, and I really couldn't be happier to co-host tonight's show. Many of our teachers across the network have dedicated themselves to young people and many um, of those young people have arrived in the United States from extraordinary circumstances. And that's why we felt that Luma Muffler's young adult book, Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational De Justice for Refugee Children, published by HarperCollins, and the memoir From Here, published by Nancy Paulson Books, needed to be featured and celebrated with teachers. Not only is Luma Muffler with us tonight to discuss writing, but we are thrilled to have teachers William King and Jessica Baldazon, both of Bridgeport Bridgeport Public Schools as guest interviewers. Uh, like Brian, Jessica and William have also admired Luma Muffla from afar, and we couldn't think of a better pairing for tonight's conversation. Luma, William, and Jessica, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. So I have the honor of introducing our writer guest. Luma Muffla is an activist, twice published author, entrepreneur, coach, and thought leader in refugee and English language learner education. As an asylee, as an asylee, as well as a daughter and granddaughter of Syrian refugees, Luma continues to draw on her personal experiences to fuel her passion for empowering refugee and immigrant children through education. In 2006, she found Fuji, founded Fuji's Academy, Fuji's family, right? Um, which is the work that she's been doing, not changing, not only changing the lives of children and families here, but also shifting the narrative around refugees from one of fear to one of courage and resilience. Her TED Talk on educational justice has been viewed more than 1.8 million times. I'm, I think probably five or six of those are mine. She is the author of two books, 2022's Learning America, 
which I have in my hand right now, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. And the recently, like very recently, 2023, 2023 memoir from here, which just arrived to my house and I'm excited. And I'll, Tanya, if you'll introduce the teachers, that'd be great. Of course, my pleasure. Um, if I can make my slides work. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Jessica. Jessica Baldazon is in her eighth year working as a certified teacher of English to speakers of other languages. She serves as a service learning coordinator and a school university partnership liaison aimed at improving <clears throat> learning outcomes and promoting educational equity. She's a co-founder and program coordinator for Hope Club, harboring optimism and perseverance through education. She also founded a young ladies book club for multilingual learners. She works with the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University, teaching little labs for big imaginations and Ubuntu Academy for young writers from ages eight to 18. No matter the learning space, Jessica makes sure to include community building exercises, opportunities for collaboration and chances for young authors to present their work. Jessica shares her love of people and words with students by encouraging them to write their stories through creative, colorful thinking. And with us all tonight is William King. William has been working with inner city youth for over 16 years. He's currently employed as a high school ESOL teacher in one of the state's largest urban districts. William had, has found inspiration in his position as co-founder and program coordinator for Hope Club, a weekly after-school program which affords high school English learners opportunities to extend their language skills and community. William enjoys teaching Ubuntu Academy and sports literacy labs during the summer with the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University. He encourages his students and colleagues to reflect and build on their shared experiences. As a result, he is serving his community by assisting with the development of a collective aptitude which will drive innovation and equity as a means of positively moving today's youth into the modern era. And now it's my pleasure to turn the show over to William and Jessica, who will introduce a writing prompt to open tonight's show. Hello everyone. In keeping with the National Writing Project way, we wanna offer the prompt that you see and invite you to write about a time when you arrived for the first time to a new location. Write about what it felt like entering this new space and how uh, you felt or did not feel that you belonged. Well, we wish you the best conversation ever. We'll sit back with our tissues and no, actually we'll sit back with our hearts feeling large because of the inspiration of tonight's show. So we're signing off and have a great conversation. All right. Go ahead, Will. How much time you want to give me? As little as possible so I can ask all the questions that I am burdening in my heart to ask Luma. Okay, um, Luma, so many of the questions we have for you as an activist, educator, dreamer, and leader are answered in your new book, Learning America. Some of them, I would say. As Brian said earlier, we've been following your career as a way to do the work we do with young people. With this said, perhaps a good first question is, why did you choose to tell the story in your own book? One written for young readers. 
how did this book come to be? And I just have to give you some backstory. Um, when I read Outcast United, your character, <laughs> your character was equally real to me as the entire uh, um, refugee story that I was learning about. So this question for me is is very is dear at heart because your story is integral to everything, and and I kind of wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Outcast United came in came out in two thousand seven, and there was uh, you know a lot about the soccer season, and it was written about us, you know, and I, I have some issues with the way it was written, um, and how it portrayed all the different characters. Um, and it wasn't my, my experience, right? It was seen through someone else's lens. Um, and, you know, what was it like 10 years later, I gave a TED talk. I was approached to write a book after that. I was like, not ready, not ready. I don't have time. I'm running an organization. Um, and then um, I got this fellowship. Uh, with the Emerson Collective, and a lot of it is around communication and storytelling and, and your own narrative. And again, I was approached to write a book. I was like, okay, maybe now's the time. Maybe now I actually have a story to tell. Um, and it was also the timing. Um, I had this one um, incident with a student. We were driving to a game, and um, he's like, Coach, are you a refugee or an immigrant? And I was like, well, what do you think? He's like, I think you're an immigrant. And I was like, why do you think I'm an immigrant? He's like, well, because you have this like successful organization. People know about you. You have a beautiful house. You're married to an American woman. And I was like, oh, there's so many layers of what is built into him identifying what is an immigrant and what is success, right? And I said, actually, I'm a refugee. You know, the car got quiet and I explained a sliver of my story to him and he's like coach you make us tell our stories and share our stories and you have to share yours because I'm going to read that book and this is not a kid who's a reader so I was like all right this is going to get him to read um and I think story has the power to change like change people's mindsets and perceptions and so when I started out um in end of 2019 uh writing the book proposal I initially was pitching Learning America, actually not an adult memoir. Um, and then two different editors saw it very differently. One is like, no, you have a social justice memoir about your work with your backstory weaved in, which ended up being Learning America. And another editor is like, you have a young adult book and it's a story of you growing up in the Middle East. Um, and it ended up being the book I wish I had when I started this work, you know, that was like authentic and messy and like just telling people what, what, what happens, right? Um, and then the other one's the book I wish I had growing up as a gay Arab Muslim, uh, thinking I was the only one in the world. Um, and so it's, and then the pandemic hit, which yeah. allowed me to write. Like it, I, I didn't travel as much and um, got to write and it was very therapeutic and ended up launching a different initiative for our organization, taking us in a different direction. Hmm. Thank you for it sharing. It feels surreal. 
Yeah, I my have turn, my turn because yeah. it is surreal to be here. And if I don't get my questions, I don't know what <laughs> I will do because I read your book, Luma, and I kept thinking, I need to ask on this. I need, I wonder about that. And it's everything, you know, I am a public school teacher. I am the daughter of um, immigrants who came to this country as a result of war. Um, I, there's just so many things that I want to know. But one of them is, you know, we offered teachers and students this opportunity to write about belonging. Mm -hmm. And um, viewers may have seen that you became a U.S. citizen in front of your students. So we're just curious to know, what are your thoughts on this word, um, which, of course, stands for so many things and has so many layers, mm -hmm. as you continue to be a role model for us, for your students, and so many? The word belonging. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think... You know, when everyone asks, hey, what is it that you guys do at your schools is like so different. You know, they want the curriculum, they want the playbook. And I was like, we create belonging because when people feel they can be their whole selves, don't have to code switch, don't have to like pretend they know something or hide where they are mm -hmm. seen and valued for who they are, that is when they thrive. Um, and some of it is, is simple, right? Like some of it is as simple as being greeted with a smile, you know, um, Teachers learning a few phrases from your language, sharing food, um, playing together, like find your commonalities and then your differences, it just comes together, right? Um, you end up celebrating your differences, right? But if we focus on our differences, we never find common ground. Um, and so that's what we do. We meet kids where they are and play together, play on soccer teams. You know, I think sports teams are really powerful at creating, if done right, you belong to a team that has your back no matter what, right? Um, and if you don't have to hide who you are and you're not being mocked for who you are or judged for who you are, like that's where you want to be all the time. Um, yeah. I think that was something that stood out to me too, as you were describing how the students have to belong to the soccer team, that they have to try a musical instrument, um, that they have to participate in the arts overall. So mm -hmm. it really seems to like this invitation to try out all of these yeah. different possibilities. Yeah, it's it. like athletics and arts are usually not accessible to everyone, right? You have to pay for it or mom and dad can pick you up after school or you're signing up for camps or only the elite get to play sports. And I'm like, that's just ridiculous. Like everyone needs to be playing it all the time. And it doesn't have to be soccer for our community. That is what is familiar. That is a positive association with their countries of origin. Um, but it could be any team sport, you know? Um, and why do we put obstacles to that access? Why do we cut out the arts when kids thrive and love it? You know, when you ask a lot of kids or adults now, like what was their most important thing in school? Like what got them through high school? They're not gonna say English class, I mean, maybe a handful. But the majority of kids are going to say that the sports team they played in, the after school club, uh, the play they were a part of, you know, the art show they created, like it's, and that's what brings people together. Um, and for, you know, multilingual students, those are other languages of expression. You don't need to know English to be successful in those mediums. And so we create times during our day where all our students can feel successful. You know, because we are going to push and they are going to struggle in more traditional academic classes. But where is it that yoga, martial arts, um, choir, band, um, visual art class, drama, that's, they love it. And they acquire language there as well and other skills. 
You good, Jess? Mm -hmm. For now. Um, so Luma, I have to ask this, and I'm asking it as from a coach's perspective and also from a human perspective, because when I'm listening to you, I hear this, um, you're very personable, right? There's this personhood in your voice. And the more I look at sports, especially on the higher levels and even starting in the high schools, um, I see programs that are getting away from being personable, right? With, with athletes, it's all about wins. It's all about production. It's all about the program. It's all about the school. You talk about soccer being a metaphor for life, assisting your learners on and off the field. Mm -hmm. Why is this important? And like, why soccer? I mean, I think soccer, because it has that positive connotation of home, right? It's a sport you cannot win with a star player. You know, people can make that argument. You cannot win with one star player. You know, Messi cannot carry the Jordanian team to qualify for the World Cup. You know, and I can say Jordan because we've never made qualifier, right? Um, you need all 11 players to show up and work together. It is also the one sport where the coach is not in control, right? Mm. You can't call a timeout. By the time you call a play, it's something else. So you have to trust that what you have coached and taught the players is going to be great. You know, you can make a few tweaks with subs. You can watch, hey, this player does need to take a break. But for the most part, you're not in control. You're observing, you're keeping steady. And that's what I love about it because then you see creativity and beauty and community. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what you want the world to be. You don't want people to be controlled and pop, you know, like, American football is very controlled, right? Yes. Called, like, I was like, oh, this is not, a, it drives me crazy. I was like, mm -hmm. I want to see the creativity and the beauty and the, and the, like, there's passion, but it feels more robotic, right? Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. There's not a lot of flexibility on what plays is going to get called, but in soccer, like, you just, yeah. And it takes a long time to score a goal. So you have to, like, be patient. And but then when it happens, it's it's magical. Um, and I think all sports, you know, done right builds character. Um, you know, we have a, if you don't pass, you don't play, right? Mm -hmm. And when we have that, and team shares their grades with each other, they start supporting each other. They know, hey, you got to get to class and show up. Hey, we have a big test. I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to practice with you, right? And they all understand they contribute in different ways. Um, but done wrong, then, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your academics are terrible. I'm still going to let you play at any cost, right? And what message are you sending to mm -hmm. kids and people about that? Like, we value some, one thing over the other. Um, and that not everybody is valued in our society. Like, that's not a message we want to send. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that the public sharing of the report cards, because when I read it, I was like, that is genius, because that is a communal, you know, I know it mentions shame in the book and shame being something, you know, just an experience that that may have been shared in the moment, but that communal responsibility that instantly kind of kicks in, in, in the face of that, I, I don't know how you said it was on, on the sidelines of a soccer game, but how, where did that come from? So really? it started off like 
I, you know, kids would give me their report cards and I would let them, you know, hey, you're, and then one kid was like, no, I'm, she, she didn't let me play because I was late to practice. I was like, no, 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 I'm a fair coach. You know exactly when you can't play. I was like, we're all sharing it together, right? And then they're like, hey, Mark, you need to show up to school. Like, they, you know, they knew who's attending school. This was before we started our school, right? And there's no shame in saying you're struggling with something, mm-hmm. right? And other people in your community are responsible to help. You know, we always celebrate who made the honor roll, right? By celebrating that, we're basically saying, hey, you guys did not, right? But we're not doing anything to get them to the honor roll. You know, and for us, it's the opposite. It's like, we see what needs to be done. And sometimes kids have a hard time. You know, you can have an A student, like get a C, and everybody notices that. Every teacher, every adult in the building, every kid, and they're like, we've got your back. Like, we're going to take care of you. And you don't have to explain, you know? Um, yeah, it's, I think, a more Eastern approach. You know, it's like, commu- community is very Eastern individuality is very western and it's like how can we blend the both because too much of an extreme is not good right um yeah that's so very true i have to say i will remember this 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 idea of creativity and patience and that is a direct sign of humanity right that person Mm -hmm. that i was talking about So we know from our own experiences working with refugee background, Jessica and I, youth and immigrants, that more often than not, our K-12 schools operate in overdrive with loudspeakers yelling, college, 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 or get to class, do your homework, be on time. Yet in Learning America, you reflect on your own education and how the college-bound trajectory might not be best for, <clears throat> sorry, might not be best for all kids. Can you share more about your thoughts on this, Luna, and how the relationships you built with young people have taught you more about establishing their futures? I mean, I think uh, a lot of us do this. We impose our values and our lens on everyone else, right? And so, you know, when people ask, like, how is it that you got to college? Like, what, what? And I was like, well, there's never an option. Like, that is just, the choice was grad school for our family, right? Um, but, you know, my grandmother, uh, she has a sixth grade education, right? And then her daughters all finished high school. Her youngest finished college. And then all her grandkids, all her granddaughters finished college. And a few went to grad school. So it was that incremental step by step, right? Um, but for me, like, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with like some of the charter schools, but like, you know, KIPP and that, like they put the college pennants everywhere. That's all, kid walks in, that's all they see. And and it's like Harvard, Stanford, it's like not even, like we want you to go to college, but these are the things we, these are the ones we value. Um, and I think for me, we had a, a senior um, so close to graduating and his senior year failed a class, hadn't failed a class his entire six years with us, like nothing. Um, I couldn't figure it out, like what's going on. I was close to his family. No one could figure it out. And he didn't want to go to college. And he felt if that was not what he did, he would be disappointing us. 
And that broke my heart. I'm like, wait, that's the only message you've been getting. And it was too late to like adapt and try to get him into an apprenticeship. And because that is what message we had been sending, like in our hallways, in our talks to students. Um, like I don't display, like the only thing I display in my office are pictures of kids and my to-do list. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have penance anywhere, like college they're nowhere um and then listening to kids like when you ask them hey what do you want to be when you grow up you know someone will give you the answer they're supposed to give doctor engineer lawyer right mm -hmm. and you're like but there's so much in between right and so many things that you can earn a good living mm -hmm. um yeah and so exposing not only the kids but the adults to all these other pathways that they can have buy-in into what it is um and when we ask kids, like, no, seriously, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? They're like, I want to take care of my mom. Mm -hmm. That's a very easy thing to do. It's a lot easier. Like, hey, then we're going to find something that you're good at, that you enjoy doing, that has upward mobility. Mm -hmm. And college is the only, isn't the only thing that gives you upward mobility. That's true. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not going to tell a kid to go to college and take on this ridiculous amount of debt with no guarantee of paying off that debt. That is... That's not what I'll do. Um, and so we say, if you can take out $5,000 in loans max a year that you can pay off because you feel that's manageable, anything more than that, you're in a hole for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you don't want to be straddled with debt. Um, and that's something that William and I have personally now because of our own experiences with mm -hmm. this and that kind of trajectory and just not knowing because it's very easy to sign and very easy, you know, to apply mm -hmm. for scholarships and things, but that debt is real at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something difficult that we've experienced our own selves, but now we're able to help the students that we're, we're lucky to work with. Yeah. Um, that kind of goes into, you know, at the end of Learning America, you were saying a mission would be to help all schools in, mm -hmm. in the states and just districts in general have yeah. programs for students that maybe have interrupted education, that are newcomers in our public schools. And thinking that the Fuji could be a model, Fuji Academy could be a model and implemented for more and more students. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more though on that vision and what you know teachers currently in our public schools like William and I in elementary, middle, high schools, what we might do to help this be successful? So we launched, it's called Project Taranga, which is Senegalese word for hospitality, community and belonging. Um, and, you know, I fleshed it out, like, at the end of Learning America, then right after that, and we actually launched uh, with a pilot district last fall, we launched it with Bowling Green, Kentucky, um, to help them design and open a newcomer program for um, life students, middle and high school age students, right? And we spent six months designing it with them based on our model, um, and then opened it in August to 80 students. Um, they ended up by May having 120 students. It was opt-in only. Um, and 100% of the students made one academic uh, year gain. And 69% mm. uh, did two plus years of gain, right? And so it's based on our model, you know, arts is core, sports is core to it. It's about having community and loving accountability. Um, and we worked with the teachers to help them, you know, make sure they implement and set up our structures the right way. Everything from our soccer teams to 
um, houses to the schedule. And then we did 72 hours of adult PD to the entire team. So every adult in the building attended the PD, everyone from the registrar, the cafeteria worker to the teachers. It's one team. You're working as a team. Um, and it was, it's been, it surpassed our expectations, you know, and I think they were hungry for something new. Um, it wasn't based on a curriculum. It was based on an approach and a mindset and meeting kids where they are, you know, so you have 11, 12 year olds who don't know the letters of the alphabet. We're teaching them letters of the alphabet and small classes. And it's like rapid acceleration. It's a sports approach, right? Like if you don't know soccer, we're not going to throw you into a game when you don't know how to pass or stop the ball or right. like we have to teach you that. And so let's teach it. Once you know the fundamentals and those are solid, everything else falls into place. But if your fundamentals are foundational skills are not, then you're always playing catch up. You're trying to fill holes and middle and high school teachers don't know how to teach reading because everyone assumes by the time you come to middle school, you should know how to read. Well, our students didn't pick what age they fled the war or fled their countries. And so we have kindergarten teachers teaching that level one group because they're really good at it. Um, and they're also really good at creating classrooms that kids want to be in, you know? Um, yeah. That's true. Um, can I just piggyback off that? So it's for me, you know, as a former athlete and also coach, I stress to the players that I work with that how important foundational skills are. And I also remind them that they should still practice them, mm -hmm. right? It, it should almost become a part of their being, right? Because we, we, we we're so quick to look at what is popular and what is, um, what is fashionable, mm -hmm. but all those popular items and moves and, and strategies and fashionable passes and things of that nature, they're all rooted in these foundations. So the joy really should be at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you should appreciate the process from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I'm really feeling that comment that you just made because when people ask me, hey, Coach King, you know, why you have us doing the ABCs? I said, because the ABCs is how how you yeah. survive. Yeah. It is how you survive. Like, I mean, think of like, I mean, Kobe Bryant talked about like, you want to be great. You got to practice three to four hours a day. And he's practicing like how to dribble with his right hand. Left. He does, it's not fancy. <laughs> it's like the muscle memory has to kick in. Like it has to keep getting activated. Right. And same with your brain. Like you have to practice that. And like in music, like any professional musician, they all warm up with the scales. They don't mm -hmm. start playing right away. They got to like warm up. Right. And so why aren't we do, doing that in education? You know, we want these like quick fixes, flashy new solutions where it's like, no, there's something that works with the human brain and the human body mm -hmm. that we've been doing really well, you know? Uh, okay, my next question. Speaking of student success, Learning America highlights teachers who have worked with you and the Fujis as well. Sharing the style of teacher that has the talent to reach the students. And you kind of mentioned that a little bit just now. Can you share what you have learned about successful teachers who work with refugee background youth? And then how might we help other teachers to better reach young people 
coming to the United States from the refugee camps? I think um, someone who's successful, like with with working with our community, has to be um, humble. You know, this work is going to bring you to your knees. You're going to think you know how to do stuff, and then you're like, wait, I actually don't know how to do this. And you have to be willing to try new things and do an approach that may make you feel uncomfortable. A lot of teachers are uncomfortable with teaching ABCs to 11, 12, and 13-year-olds. You know, and my pushback to them is, we sent you to China or we sent you to Jordan. You think you're going to be taught college-level Arabic? You're not. You're going to learn how to sound out the letters and what they look like and practice that till you get a strong foundation. And then everything falls into place, right? I think schools need to value the arts and athletics for every kid, not just once or twice a week, not as a nice to have, but as a core subject. Um, you know, we have in our schools uh, three structures that are essential, um, that we believe are essential for student success. So every kid's part of an academic cohort. So you're grouped academically by the level you're at within one to two years of each other. Then every kid belongs to a soccer team. And that group is, is a little different than your academic cohort, usually by gender mm. and with a span of two years, right? And then every kid is part of a house. So similar to Harry Potter style. She didn't invent that. It was for British boarding schools. Mm -hmm. And they're part of a house that is spans all the ages in the, in the building. And that allows for social safety nets. You are part of three social groups. So if you're having a bad time with your class, your team is there. If you're having a bad time with your class and your team, your house is there. You've got older kids men mentoring younger kids. Um, you're competing against each other, um, playing together, creating things together. Um, you have to design the school experience so kids want to go to school. And it's not just, oh, let's all have it be fun and play. But kids and adults learn while playing. And adults need to be excited to come into the building. They shouldn't be dreading, oh, God, here's another testing date. Here's another thing I have to check off. So like, no, like, do right by kids. Um, yeah. And I think be hungry to learn about the kids you're uh, working with um, and find ways to learn from them. You know, like, that's what... I think I've become a better person, a better activist. Um, our schools have become better because we listen to our kids about what is not working. It could have been very easy for me to say, no, you know what, like you screwed up your senior year, you should go into college, now you screwed up your future. Instead, no, we screwed it up. You know, you have to like admit when you make mistakes and you will make mistakes. Um, it's how you recover from those mistakes. You know, um, it's similar to soccer, right? Soccer is a game of mistakes. You're going to make a million mistakes. The team that wins is the one that knows how to handle them, recover with them from them and know when to take the opportunity when your other team messes up. Right. Um, and that's what we need to do. I hear you speak. And I think about all of, you know, we were saying before these trendy uh, moves and things. And I feel that that happens in education a lot where we kept getting these phrases of culturally responsive or sustaining or this. But I think when you have that child centered approach and that community embedded approach, everything else just it's is all there. In nature. Yeah. It's like that. That's it. Yeah. 
Um, we, we had one of our, the, you know, we're asking the Bowling Green teachers, like, what's work, what, you know, is different with your experience at Taronga than was in your, you know, middle and high school. And they're like, you know, before this, you know, culturally responsive teaching, trauma-informed uh, education, those are just buzzwords. They're like, we don't even use the words, but we're doing it. Like, we're doing it because we center the kids, right? And they're like, now we know what that actually means. Before, they didn't know what it meant. Like, it was just like, I don't understand this input. Now they know what it means. Um, yeah, sorry. Jessica, Sounds going. like it should be a requirement for all beginning teachers to at least have an internship at your schools or at least observe in action what all of this really is, um, which feels like me answering the question that I want to ask you, which is at the end of the chapter. Yeah, like, you know, the, you had sat, you had an ending, a beginning. What mm -hmm. is it that you think will make for a better right now than, than there has been? And I personally wanted to just come to your school, observe, see it all. But yeah. what, what do you think? I'd love to have you come visit. I'm going to share with you a video after this of some of the work that we did in Bowling Green. Um, at, you know, like we're launching partnerships, right? Like, so we're looking for districts that are willing to do things very differently than what's been done for their uh, multilingual population. And we define refugees as anyone who's been forced from home, not just the federal government's legal definition, right? So... Um, and we want people who are willing to move mountains for their kids um, and be beginners and learners um, and then be a coalition of trying to create better solutions um, that we're always evolving and improving. So we're coming back in. I think Tanya's arriving as we speak. We just flew back in for this conversation. Um, your work has friendship with the National Writing Project, with the Connecticut Writing Project. Um, in any way we can help support this this dream and this vision, we're here. Um, I always kind of like speak about something that resonated with me before we get to the final question. And um, muscle memory was the thing that hit me. When I did my research, I was with these boys 24 seven, right? And it was the coaches, the soccer coaches, where the real learning was happening. Mm -hmm. But I also learned that in the classrooms where the teachers saw themselves more as coaches than as teachers, there was more success. There was some scrimmaging. There was some play. There was a lot of reflection. There was, we're going to come back tomorrow and do this again. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was in awe. But my research was interesting because it was not, I'm not an ESL teacher. I'm an English teacher. And so I was trying to figure out how do mainstream teachers better help these students when they're in the classroom. And, and I learned that they don't really know how and that the really good work was happening on the athletic fields in the, in the art rooms and with the ESL teachers, um, which brings me back to this idea of I'm a, I've always felt like I, I like music instruments. I try to play everything. I quit. But the one thing I have never quit at sports, I played and then I ended up quitting. I didn't go on. Um, I never quit what I call the keyboard piano, which is learning to type my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's a muscle memory. Like when, when I was doing my research with the kids, they were talking and I was writing everything down as fast as I could. And everybody was running over to my screen saying, look at how mad fast this guy types everything we're saying. Yeah. And I realized that didn't come overnight. That came from years and years and years of practice and sticking to the game of writing. Mm -hmm. And we know from our research in writing that writing is often assigned and not taught. Yeah. 
And so state assessments come around and the kids have to write, but they've never had any practice being writers throughout the year. And how do you practice becoming a writer? Your story matters. Mm -hmm. And I think my boys over and over again have said, there's three things you need to be successful in America, education, education, and education. How our universities define that, how our K-12 schools define that is not true. Education transcends those boundaries. And education is a mother and a father. And, and that's what makes us a family. And so your writing of these books and your story is helping so many of us who work with these populations to see that our community is larger than we actually thought. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to better reach the population of students that are coming into our classroom with beautiful stories still to be written. So I'm going to hand it over to Back to Jessica for the final question, and then and then Tanya has to close off the show. So we flip our beginning question now and ask, how do you help others to feel a sense of belonging? What do you do in your spaces so that others can become a part of the community? And how might our schools do a better job of this? And there is our prompt. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you, Jessica and William. That was a lovely interview. Um, thank you, Luma. I probably can't talk without tears in my eyes, but um, your vision of what school can be is, um, I mean, I think someone my age knows that actually this is possible in the United States. But I grew up in the 1970s in a rural school and I had art and I had music. <laughs> I went to a school that had shop classes and home economics classes and mm -hmm. believe it or not, a rifle range for people <laughs> who were like headed toward the National Guard. But in fact, that meant everybody had something they were good at at school. Mm -hmm. And there was it was a community space and it wasn't as beautifully rendered, I don't think, as the vision that you're putting forward. But schools used to work that way in this country mm -hmm. and they could and there's no need in the, such a wealthy nation for schools to be so unwelcoming and unattractive and um, uncaring. And I think that your just steady beating of this drum and showing that it's possible for every kid to be welcomed and cared for at school is the most important message I've heard in our country and i'm so thankful to have been able to talk to you to introduce you to anybody in our network who hasn't seen your work and yeah. to get these you got one upside down friend one upside down <laughs> i realized that there you go get these books yeah. into teachers hands so i thank you for the beautiful work that you are putting out in the world i think for the beautiful work you are doing in your community and for the time you're taking to make that vision more broadly available to all of us to remember who we could be as a nation if we wanted to. I mean, I think that's one thing refugees and immigrants bring is this um, patriotism or this lens of what yeah. America can do. Like, it's exactly. like no nowhere in the world could I be doing this. Like, I couldn't criticize Jordan's public education system. I'd be tossed in jail for that, you know? Right. And mm -hmm. so, like, you can actually do things here and and, and create solutions and band together and yeah, where other places you can't, you can't do it. You yeah. 
you remind you and your work remind us um, what our best selves might be. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, audience, if you love the show and if you didn't, I don't believe you have a pulse. If you loved this show, then please go to nwp.org and sign up for our right now newsletter so you never miss one. Um, also join our community where we talk about things like this show and books like Luma's books. Um, you can join our stu the studio at studio.nwp.org. Um, and you can find this podcast at um, NWP Bitly. Uh, sorry, uh, Bitly NWP Radio. Um, thank you, everyone. And again, Jessica and William, as you know, it's always my pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you about um, your work. And I appreciate you representing the network tonight. And Luma, Thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Luma. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Thank you, Tanya. WP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.